And we're in Romans chapter 3 today, uh, attempting to get through verse 20. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Titling today's sermon, Everyone Needs the Gospel. Everyone Needs the Gospel. Kind of a subtitle would be, My Acquittal from Universal Guilt. My Acquittal. From universal guilt. As we're cracking open chapter 3, just a review, chapter 1, Paul told us that the not Jewish world called Gentiles has an inward witness of conscience and also an external witness of creation that there is a creator and he has standards and he is righteous and requires righteousness. And even though we have conscience and creation telling us these things, we rejected God and went and worshiped all kinds of created things and flying things and walking things and creepy crawly things and uh, just matter that has been created rather than worshiping the Creator who's forever blessed. And we read that God is right and just to condemn each one of us in our sin. We are all sinners. Chapter 2, Paul explains to the Jew that even in all of his religious observances, they are guilty of the same things. Perhaps not in the same way as the Gentile non-Jewish people, but in other ways too. In chapter 2, uh, by the way, how wonderful to have uh, former pastors, you know, uh, retired pastors, but still guys with pastor's hearts to serve. Ira Hodge and Doug Snow the last two weeks uh, using this pulpit. Uh, I haven't gotten to watch the videos yet, but I've gotten to hear great things as those guys tackled chapter two for me. And there in chapter two, we learned that it's not the hearers of the Bible that are just before God, but it's the doers of the law or the Bible who are justified. Chapter two showed us that the playing field is level that both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God. And Paul will challenge the religious Jew, and then we can apply it to us today. The religious person will be challenged in their hypocrisy. Then we come to chapter 3. We see in these chapters an absolutely incredible presentation that all are guilty of sin. And I'd heard that this uh, that the old school Harvard Law School was required to memorize the first eight chapters of Romans, that they are such a great legal treatise on guilt that this law university was required to memorize it. And then I hesitantly say that because I opened up some old notes of mine and it said Stanford University. So you're like, oh gosh, now I got to go do some fact checking, you know. But uh, one of these, maybe both, I don't know, maybe it was both of them, reputable universities memorizing uh, Romans chapter 8. 
And this morning we turn a corner as Paul summarizes chapter 1 and chapter 2 in chapter 3. That chapter 1, the pagan, the Gentile who doesn't know God, has a conscience that condemns them. In chapter 2, the Jew with the law of Moses, the commandments. We can even go far and broaden that to say someone with the Bible is condemned. And then the first part of chapter 3, the Jew is guilty, but they have a great advantage. But that advantage cannot secure salvation and bring you exemption from judgment on the day of judgment. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul just imagines that there would be some objections raised to his reasoning. And so Paul is going to play the other side and give some counterpoints to his argument. Okay? Uh, and we'll see that in those first eight verses. And so we've just learned, I believe that Doug taught on this last week, understanding that even one of the most religious things that the Jew could do, and that was to be circumcised, is to it, it means nothing if in your life you're not obedient. And he says, even if it's a non-Jewish person that's never been circumcised, and yet they obey the Lord, their uncircumcision is counted as circumcision. And I know I just crossed a line right there that if you're kind of newer to church or reading the Bible, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this stuff. Now homeboy just started talking about circumcision. Like, oh goodness gracious, I'm done. I'm done. Where's my car? I got to go. You know, and just think of it as for the Jew, circumcision was kind of that external evidence that you're in. You're in, man. You are a child of Abraham. You are Hebrew. I mean, don't worry about it. Like, God has got to like you, you know? And we read, though, that that whole law and, and that mark, and when we get into the New Testament, it's just a symbol of what God wants to do to our hearts, inside our hearts, to our inner person, that he wants to cut away the flesh of our heart and, and give us a new heart. And that's the, the, what the Lord is saying. And so much so that even in the law, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, it says, Moses says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And maybe you're somebody that just, I mean, you can blame it all on your roots. You'll show up in boots, you know. It's my Irish heritage, and you're just stiff-necked and stubborn to everybody, including the Lord. You know, and, and, uh, and the Lord says, hey, don't be stubborn towards me anymore. You need to have me circumcise your heart, give you a new heart. And then again in uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul that you may live. And we know from the Bible that that's a work that He does to you. He does that work in your heart that you'll love the Lord with everything you have. 
And so maybe you're here today and you would just say, man, I don't know that I love the Lord with everything I have. Maybe I need him to do that to my heart. And the great thing is right, right now where you're at, you can just ask the Lord, Lord, this seems like an odd prayer to pray, but I'm going to ask it. Would you circumcise my heart? Would you give me a new heart? Would you take away all the just extra, all the junk, all the stuff that's distracting me from you? Give me a new heart. And so as Paul is preaching this in Romans chapter 2, he just knows that the Jews listening have got all kinds of counterpoints, points, counterpoints, objections, criticisms. And so Paul's going to answer those and he's going to do it in kind of a question answer format, talking to himself. Okay, so he's going to start out, oh, I I just know what you're thinking. Here's the first question you're going to ask. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 3. If circumcision doesn't matter, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? So that's their first objection to what Doug Snow taught on last week. Well, then what advantage does the Jew have, huh? What's the whole hubbub about? About children of Abraham and... Is there any advantage, is there any profit to what we've been doing for thousands of years in circumcision? And so that's the first cue to be followed up with an A. But let me help with reading a little of John Stott. Now, I just got to warn you, you guys, this isn't elementary school church, okay? This is deep theology doctrine, deep stuff. Don't be scared of it. Okay. You're not going to get everything, but just purpose in your heart. I'm going to start growing deeper in Jesus. The book of Hebrews, Paul's writing to the Hebrews or it's, it might be Apollos. Nobody knows who wrote it, but he says, Oh man, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but I can already tell you just blew a fuse. And he says, you guys, you've got to grow up and you've got to mature and you've got to move on from talking about the elementary principles of the faith. You guys are always all consumed about like the simple stuff. And you know what? You've got teeth now. Let's get put the bottle away. No more Baba. Milky, you know, and I've got a ribeye fresh off the Traeger for you. Okay. And so what that means for you guys, and I remember when it happened to me, I was eighth grade coming out of being a carnal Christian. The Lord brought me to a Calvary chapel and I don't know what happened, but he got a hold of me and I started bringing my Bible to church and I started bringing a notebook to church and I started taking notes and just writing down all that I could that the preacher said. And there's something about writing it down that makes it go from your head into your heart so often. So I just encourage you, it might be the notepad. Nowadays, I use the notebook on my phone, okay? And so I just write down just things that the Lord's... And maybe it's just the stuff the Lord is ministering to you, and you might want to write that down. So you guys with me, like, uh, you know, wear your hiking boots to church, you know, lace them up, and uh, bring your leather gloves, you know, or whatever, because we're going to do some work, okay? Don't really wear your hiking boots. You can't. But that season's not really right now. So anyways, so John Stott, a great Scottish preacher. He passed away close to 10 years ago. I love him. I use him a ton. He said, 
Paul's method of handling Jewish objections to his teaching takes the form of a diatribe. Okay, new word for me, diatribe. As we have seen, a literary convection well known to philosophers in the ancient world. In it, a teacher would set up a dialogue with his critics or his students, first posing and then answering their questions. Paul has already begun to do this when addressing both the critical moralizers of chapter 2, verse 1, and the Jew in verse 17 of chapter 2, but now he develops it further. It's not necessary to suppose that he's debating opponent is an imaginary or fictitious debate. It seems more probable that he's reconstructing the actual arguments which Jews have flung at him during his synagogue evangelism. So Paul has done so much missionary work, he already knows what people have said to what he's preached, and so he brings that up as if he's talking to them here in chapter 3. And I appreciate people that do that. I think of Chris, uh, Pastor Chris, and sometimes he'll be talking about, as he's you know, reasoning through stuff, and he'll say, do I think this, this, and this? No, I don't think that. But do I think this? You know, and it's like he's verbalizing the opposite counterpoint. And I'm always like, I got to be smart like that. I got to do that, you know. And uh, I'm just like, man, I really got to grow in this. I don't know if I've got the, the brain capacity to do it. But Paul did. And he's, he's, he's doing a great job. You, you may not understand how good Paul is doing in his writing. You can see it being useful in law school. And so we're going to see, it's as if Paul's critic were having an argument with him on an elevator because they're going to be wrong on so many levels, okay? And the first level is, what advantage has the Jew then? And what right is circumcision? If God doesn't look at circumcision, but he looks at the inner heart of a person, then why did he give circumcision in the first place? Is it profitable at all? Is a Jew, is being a Jew even profitable? And you might remember from verse 23, it might even be on the same page you're on, back in chapter 2, verse 23, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And the book of James tells us that if you keep the whole law, and you know the Ten Commandments, right? But did you know that there's 603 more commandments on top of that in the Old Testament? So you're like, oh, Ten Commandments. We would already read Ten Commandments and know that we've, we've failed 10 out of 10 times. Why don't we throw another 603 on there for you? Merry Christmas, you know, and you'll just realize like, I have totally botched this whole thing. Okay. James tells us that if you even break one of them, that God is so perfect and righteous that you're guilty of breaking all of it. That's how serious this whole thing is. And so circumcision is profitable if you're going to keep the whole lot. But you can't rest on your circumcision if you can't keep the rest of it either. And so, but he is going to say in our next verse, verse 2, what profit is, is being a Jew 
much in every way. And the best way that it's profitable to be a Jew is to them were committed the oracles of God. There is so much profit to being a Jew. Uh, I always love telling this story, but Chris and Shannon Newell, we get to spend quite a bit of time with them, and they were in our home group one year, and I just laugh because almost every time I spend time with Chris Newell, I learn something like surprising about him. And so you meet Chris, he's a cowboy, his whole days are spent riding the Ochico Mountains pushing cattle around, and like, and he knows every nook and cranny of those mountains, and He's in my home group and he's like, well, I got it. You know, this Saturday I've got a big badminton tournament in Bend. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Do you wear your cowboy cut Wranglers when you're playing badminton? You know? And, uh, and then it was just so great because him and Shannon both did one of those DNA tests. And I'm like, oh, I bet I could kind of guess what you are, you know? And, and uh, it comes back, you know, and something like, I'm going to totally forget, but it's like Scottish and English and this and that. And then Chris comes back and he's 2% Nigerian. And I was like, this is great. Next time we pray for an unreached people group and it's Nigeria, I'm going to have one of their own come up and pray for their first people. <laughs> and then Shannon's comes back the next week. She tells us she's like 4% Nigerian. We're just going to have a whole festival celebrating Nigeria. And then uh, Shannon also shares that she's like a certain percent Jewish. And I'm like, this is just incredible. You're one of the chosen ones. And she, you know, well, what profit is that in 2020 Prineville or whatever? You know, I'm making up some story here. Shannon, just indulge me. Okay. She didn't really say this, but you know, hypothetically, well, what advantage is there to that? And Paul would say much in every way to the Jew was committed the oracles of God that God saw fit to give the Jews the revelation of who he is in written form. The process of big word for you in scripturation, right? Where holy men of God were moved as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter one, verse 21 happened to the Jewish people, okay? Or what someone once put it, that they are the custodians of the scripture. Such a big and wonderful responsibility. So there's so much profit in being a Jew, but it's a different kind of value than the Jews thought. They thought it gave them exemption from judgment, that's not the prophet. Rather, they were given responsibility. Responsibility rather than security. So the first great benefit is the Jews have been given God's whole revelation, the very words of God, his law. Take your Bible and just flip a number of chapters back to Romans 9, 3. And Paul just says, I love the Jews so much. They're just the people his heart burns for. And he just says, I would, I would go to hell 
so that my brothers and my fellow countrymen could know Jesus. If I could trade, I would be accursed from God so that my people could be saved. Anybody else have that heart for your people? Yeah, that's a, that's a big, big commitment there. And he just says, here are my people, verse 4, the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So right there in Romans 9, Paul lists the benefits of being a Jew. Adoption, glory, the, the promises, the covenants, the law of God, service in the temple of God, the house of God, promises, father Abraham, father Jacob, father Isaac, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I got the order wrong there. Um, man, Jewish people who the savior of the world came through. So he lists a lot of these wonderful benefits. It's huge. It's a huge advantage. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have the next objection that Paul can just hear his critic saying. Everybody following along? You getting it? Objection to Paul's teaching, that just nullifies God's faithfulness. And that's verse 3. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? I teach out of the New King James Version. And I would just encourage you to get that version if you come to Calvary. That's just what I teach out of. So it'll be so much. Do yourself a favor. Get the same translation that I uh, teach out of. It's very accurate to the original manuscripts, but it's easier to read. Okay? Um, so if you have a new, a new living translation, you're going to just die here. You're just going to constantly be confused. If you're reading the NIV, it's going to be a struggle for you. Those are great for your quiet time and things, but I just encourage you to get a, a New King James Version or an ESV is very similar, English Standard. Um, and the reason I say that is it is fun, though, to look at the different translations. And, and the translation, it just means they were... Uh, the same words were the different synonyms were used to help make it palatable for people to understand. Okay. And so for the new Christian, they're going to use like junior high type language, you know, just so that you can understand. And then as you grow, you can start getting, you know, the more collegiate type translation. And it's helpful though. Because there's kind of a play on words that's used in verse 3 relating to the word faith. And it could be rendered as follows. Someone is stoked to fly over our service right now. They're like, what is happening right there? Uh, it says, if some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? Is anybody here familiar with spoken word type art? It's kind of like rap. A lot of the college kids are doing it these days. And this is exactly what it sounds like. And they just flow. 
Okay? And so a spoken word speaker would be like, if some of whom God's promises were entrusted, did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? Yeah! You know? And it's just crazy because that's what Paul is doing here. I mean, Paul is just a genius. This guy didn't spend his time playing Xbox growing up. You know, I'm just telling my kids, like, the more you spend in front of that screen, it just sucks the brain right out of your head. You know, like, you know, and Paul's like, yeah, sorry. You know, I was more of a Game Boy guy, you know. Um, then my dad bought me a book and I started reading it, you know. Or maybe the New Living Translation. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful does not mean that God will be unfaithful. Okay. That's Paul answering the critic there. Does Israel's unfaithfulness make God unfaithful? And we'll see his answer. We'll say that whether or not they believe God is faithful, unbelief does not negate God's plan. His plan for circumcision still has benefits. But even if man did not praise God, the rocks would cry out. And so Paul's answer to this in verse 4 is, certainly not. Does their unfaithfulness make God unfaithful? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so just this strong language, certainly not. That doesn't mean that God's unfaithful. If God's people are unfaithful, that does not necessarily mean that he is. Paul's riposte is more violent than the suggested certainly not or not at all. It's basically one suggested word is not on your life. Not in a thousand years. Give something of the flavor of what's going on here. Does their unfaithfulness mean God's unfaithfulness? Not on your life. Not in a thousand years. And then there's the quote. Uh, there's this, indeed, let God be true. And every man a liar. Boy, this is a good quote for you to know today. When you have all sorts of information flooding your mind and people that are criticizing God and saying that God's a liar and your response as a Christian ought always to be, let God be true and every man a liar. John Calvin said that this proposition is the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. Let God be true. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself, Paul tells Timothy. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has a name called faithful and true. Second Corinthians says all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. But every man cannot and does not have that same said about them. Let everyone else be known as a liar. And then it quotes Psalm 51 that you may be justified in your words and may be overcome when you are judged. God is going to be found blameless in the end. Chrysostom, 
who was a third century pastor. His name means golden-tongued, Chrysostom. He was a great orator. He wrote, what does the word blameless mean here? It means that if there were a trial and an examination of the things which God had done for the Jews and also of what they'd done to him, the victory would be with God and all the right would be on his side. So that's Paul's answer to objection number two. Here's objection number three. The objection would say that all that Paul's teaching questions God's justice. This is in verses 5 and 6. And in verses 5 through 6, 5 through 8 here, Paul is going to be responding with basically saying, preposterous. These are cockamamie questions from a hard heart. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Okay? So, a man would say, if my wickedness makes God appear better and greater and more right, then why should I be judged for that? I'm only helping him out. He should actually thank me. And he's unjust for judging me. Stott says, the more unrighteous the criminal is, then the more righteous the judge appears. In this case, he's arguing that the more sinful we are, the more glorious the gospel seems. Stott goes on to say, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, just as our unrighteousness displays, displays God's righteousness more brightly and so increases his glory, then surely God ought to be pleased, even grateful. Am I not doing him a service? And then Paul writes there, kind of in parentheses, I speak as a man here, okay? <laughs> even as he expresses this torturous reasoning, Paul feels embarrassed and adds an apology there like, hey guys, I'm just using a human argument here. I know this sounds stupid. Apologizing for even asking such a blasphemous question. And his answer in verse 6 is, certainly not. Preposterous. For then, how would God judge the world? Perish the thought. These are bogus and absurd thoughts. It's ridiculous thinking. It's manly wisdom. And you know what? If you talk to enough people out in the world, they use the same type of reasoning. Ridiculous thinking. Probably just to keep themselves able to continue on in their sin. In their argument, they know there will be judgment. Romans answers this question in chapter 6. Shall we continue to sin so that grace could abound? Certainly not. Perish the thought. In verse 7 through 8, we have the fourth objection saying that Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory. In verse 7, 
For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? You just, Paul's thinking, pathetic. Okay? Verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come from it? As we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, whoever's saying that, their condemnation is just. People always want to justify their sin and find excuses for their sin and occasion for sin. Charles Hodge put it well, according to this reasoning, says Paul, the worse we are, the better. For the more wicked we are, the more conspicuous will be the mercy of God in our pardon. And those who, in truth, fear the Lord, love the Lord, should actually desire to flee from sin. Because they realize that sin is an offense to God. And Paul just says, these guys with their reasoning like this, they're, they've hardened their heart so much, their condemnation is a just condemnation. It's really the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's whenever you're attributing God's powerful works to something satanic, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So if you come to a point where you're just so sucked into your sin and you love it so much that your excuses for it is that you're actually doing God a favor, like... Oh man, like while there's any hope in your life, turn to Jesus this second and confess your futile thinking because man, you are going down the path of the unforgivable sin of blaspheming God. It's two-way preaching that Paul has done here in these first eight verses and it's a powerful apostolic precedent for thinking through your logic Tim Keller said, Paul was a great evangelist, and we see him here placing himself in his listeners' shoes, respecting them enough to think hard about how they'd be responding to his teaching. And I think we would do well to do the same thing. I feel like we kind of did that during our teaching on homosexuality a few weeks ago, and we went through like nearly every argument for homosexuality and then brought the scripture and, and showed how it's an offense to the scripture. And just so we know what they're thinking. I know your reason. And Paul loved these people enough to know that. I wonder if you know your coworkers enough to know this is where they're coming from. This is what they'd say. And I can, I can speak to them uh, concerning this. Okay. Uh, the black cloth verses 9 through 20. And what we're going to see here in verses 9 through 20 is something that I love to consider. If you've ever been to a beautiful jewelry store, you'll go and you'll see the cabinets. And when I first began pondering this, I had just proposed to Lindsay. So this is about 20, going on 22 years ago. And you know how it is that those jewelers, they place a black fabric down and that black velvet, black velvet, okay, the black velvet causes the diamonds and the precious jewels to what? To pop, right? And so we're going to go through a number of verses here where Paul says, let me tell you the bad news first. I got some bad news for you, but wait for it. Wait for it. I'm going to give you the good news too. 
But bear with me, you got to know the bad news so that the good news shines all the more bright. Let's look at it. What then, verse 9, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. Jews, Greeks, it doesn't matter. The Jews are not better off. Everyone is under sin. It speaks of being a slave to the hard taskmaster of sin, of the fallen state of humanity. As Jesus says in John 8, 34, I'm telling you the truth. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Sin is a slave master. You don't get a wage for working as a slave. But Romans tells us that the wage for working to the slave master called sin, the wage is death. That's your payment. Everybody, Jew, non-Jew, Oregonian, all are under sin. It's a human problem. And Paul is going to do what many rabbis did back in the day. He will, he's going to string passages together like pearls on a necklace. Sometimes when I give you a lot of verse references at one time, I say, I'm machine gunning verse references at you. Are you ready? Write them down. Bop, bop, bop. And we're just going through the verse references. And Paul does what the rabbis called stringing together pearls. He's going to quote in the next number of verses from Psalms, Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, Job, Proverbs. He's going to have a catalog of sin from head to toe. What I've read this week is called a katina. And I was going to find some cool joke about a cantina, but I decided not to. There's the joke right there. Right? Which speaks of a chain. A katina is a, a chain, a catalog of sin. Are you ready for it? Machine gun verses from Paul the Apostle right here. The string of pearls to show that all are under sin. And if you don't think it's you, turns out it's you. And it's me. Look at verse 10. As it is written, so now he's going to quote scripture. There is none righteous, no, not one. So this is you right here. You are the none. <laughs> I am the none. None. You always wanted to be a none. There's none righteous. Even the nuns are not righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. Now this verse shows us our legal standing. It's kind of a first category here. Showing us that no one is righteous. This shows us that sin is theological before it's sociological. It's nothing more than the de-godding of God. All sin is idolatry. And as a result, you break all the other rules. As we study the first pearl in the string of pearls, Tim Keller says, we need to begin to grasp the problem, the reality of our sinfulness. If you're here today, you've got to realize sin is real. And you have done it. And done it again. And done it again. Bear with me with a paragraph from Stott. This first verse begins the biblical doctrine of total depravity. 
which I suspect is rejected only by those who misunderstand it. It's never meant that human beings are as depraved as they could possibly be. Such a notion is manifestly absurd and untrue and contradicted by our everyday observation. Not all human beings are drunkards, criminals, adulterers, or murderers. Besides, Paul has shown how some people sometimes are able by nature to obey the law. We saw that in chapter 2. No, the totality of our corruption refers to its extent twisting or tainting every part of our humanness. Not to its degree one is as bad as he or she might be. While on the, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a line. Not to its degree depraving every part of us absolutely. Dr. J.I. Packer put it this way. On the one hand, no one is as bad or he as she might be. While on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. The Old Testament quotations teach the universality of sin, both negatively and positively. So here we have negatively in our first verse in the chain of pearls, negatively, there is none righteous, no, not one. So as you're here today, you need to come to terms with this, that you are not inherently righteous. And that's what this speaks of. It's not that nobody ever does good. It's that nobody is good. Inherently good and inherently doing good in their goodness. Job speaks of this. What is man that he could be pure and he who's born of woman that he could be righteous? How much less man who's abominable and filthy who drinks iniquity like water? And you might reply, you don't know my heart. I have a good heart. Well, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? Jesus says that, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Ephesians tells us, by nature, we are children of wrath. There is none who is good. No, not one. And you need to understand, this is speaking of just inherit, inherit darn right goodness. So when we speak of, he's a good man, she's a good woman, oh, we know that they've done some good things. There's some good things out there. But inherently, they are not in and of themselves righteous people. The church father Origen came to terms with Paul's use of these scriptures by saying that no one has done good, not even once. a hard saying and difficult to understand. How is it possible that no one, Jew or Greek, has ever done anything good? Are we supposed to believe that nobody has ever shown hospitality, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, delivered the innocent from the hands of the powerful, or done anything similar, it does not seem possible to me that Paul was intending to assert anything as incredible as that. I think that what he meant must be understood as follows. If someone lays the foundation for a house, 
and puts up one or two walls or transports some building material to the site, can he be said to have built the house just because he set to work on it? The man who will be said to have built the house is the one who's finished off each and every part of it. So I think that here the apostle is saying that no one has done good in this sense, that no one has brought goodness to perfection and completion. And so, you know, the Calvinists do use that term total depravity. And to me, that is a dangerous phrase. It goes, it takes the Calvinist mindset down a rabbit trail that I don't think is absolutely biblical. I kind of, in my understanding, I appreciate Molinism a little bit more than I appreciate Calvinism. Have a respect for a lot of great Jesus lovers in these camps. But instead of T for tulip, meaning total depravity, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look it up, please. It's just going to cause a whole bunch of problems. Um, But it would be roses, and the R would stand for radical depravity. Radically depraved, unable to save oneself, unrighteous in and of themselves, but still able to do things because they're made in the image of God, things that are displays of God. If your eyes went crossed somewhere in there or you blew a head gasket, that's okay. I think I did too while I was preaching it. Now look at verse 11. Here's the next verse. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So just in and of yourself, you are just, oh, so understanding of the things of the Lord. Oh, I was in my mother's womb just meditating upon the things of God. I popped out. Just immediately, I don't know if you, I'm pretty much describing Jesus right now, okay? Like no one in and out, just so understanding of the holiness of God and walking in obedience. It says here, there's no one there in that place. There's no one who seeks after God. And this shows us that sin affects our minds, It's a huge statement. No one even seeks after God is what this says. At this point, everyone's offended when they're reading the book of Romans. How dare you, sir? My grandmother served alongside of the Missionary Society with the Wycliffs in Walla Walla, Washington. You know, it's like, calm the horses down, you know. I think even Narcissa Whitman understood this thing. That no one in themselves seeks after God. It's so actually a neat story, the Whitmans, Marcus and Narcissa. Not the best tact at sometimes. Wrote what every pastor's wife would write in her journal about what people are like. And just was like loving on the Native Americans, trying to bring them to Jesus. But understood That sin is rational before it's behavioral. And so no one rationally seeks after God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Nobody breaks any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the first commandment. They are not loving God and seeking after God with all of their heart. 
And you might say, wait a minute, I seek after God. And the theology is that you're not. You are seeking stuff that comes from God. You want something from God. But man in their fallen condition is not seeking after God himself. We become very self-absorbed rather than God-centered. And we need to understand who God really is and that he's the end. He's the glorious prize. He's not the means to the end. Sharing with a 92-year-old cowboy who's on his way to meet Jesus He's on his deathbed right now. I've been meeting with him and Titus has been going with me and Titus is holding his hand and I'm holding his hand and we're just sharing the gospel and he seems to have received the gospel and best I understand in our conversations and, and yet as I'm taught and so I'm preparing him to pass away. I'm telling him what to expect and I'm telling him how glorious heaven is and it's beyond what probably you or I even can begin to understand and as I say it though, I'm, you know, I'm talking to a cowboy and I'm like, imagine the most beautiful meadow that you've ever ridden your horse through, you know, and I'm just trying to like bring it to his, uh, you know, and I'm like, but let me tell you this, the most beautiful thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. And he kind of squeezed my hand and had a tear run down his cheek. And I said, what good is heaven if the creator of heaven isn't there with us? You know, he is the end. And so in all of your seeking after God, man, this world, I want God because I want him to fix my marriage. I want God because I want him to provide me a house. I want God because I've made a royal mess of things and I need him to fix it. And it's like, hey, he is the prize. Even in your seeking, you're depraved in your seeking. And that's what it's getting at here. We are a wreck and we need God to do a work in us. Paul is not denying that people do good things, but he knows that they are inevitably tainted before God because they're not built on the foundation of God for his glory, for his purposes. And so they're not fulfilling what God intended them to be. Isaiah 64 says, all of us are like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. What he's saying there is on our best day, our best work, it's like a stinky, smelly piece of garbage. Because we're just not that perfect. And you guys can go ahead and set your things aside. We're going to finish up the chain of pearls next week. But he's saying all of this to very religious people who see themselves as superior to anyone else who fail to understand the gospel, who are self-righteous, and they don't realize that, but by the grace of God, there go I. If you've ever watched Dateline NBC, you know, to catch a predator, predator with Chris Hansen, you know, he busts perverts on TV. He's got cameras and he busts people, you know, uh, here, here we have in Prineville the Crook County Creek Catcher. If you've ever seen his Facebook page, he catches people at 7-Eleven, you know, and he just, it's, I think the police were like, stop doing that, you're going to get yourself shot, you know. But, you know, you watch things like that and you're like, yeah! And the Lord's like, oh, 
you have no idea how merciful I've been to you. That, you know, I didn't have a camera on you when you were caught by me in your sin. And we just are so self-righteous that we don't realize that I'm the same person as he. And I need the same salvation as, as he and she do. We have the worship team come on up. That I have the same kernel of sin in my heart that's led them to do the same, those, those sins. I'm in the same boat as them, but different symptoms. Same disaster, different symptoms. There's none who seeks after God. I think it was Tim Keller here that says, what Paul is saying is no one prompted by their own decision and acting in their own ability wants to find God. Here's what he means. Someone might have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God or a philosophical conviction that there is a God, but that's not a real passion to meet with God. In fact, both can be a way of avoiding meeting the real God. If we can keep him in the realm of intellectual argument or philosophical construct, then we can keep ourselves from having to deal with the objective reality of the true God. It's seeking what God can give us, but not seeking him. Paul is saying that sinful self-centeredness controls all spiritual searching for meaning and experience so that we will try simply to get blessings from God, keeping controlling ourselves or rather keeping control ourselves and expecting or demanding that God serve us and shape himself to fit our needs. We won't bow. Ex uh, we won't bow down before the living God, giving him control of our lives and our futures, enjoying him for who he is and experiencing his blessings in relationship with him as we ask him to shape us as we serve him. And so right now, this is just the beginning of, I think it's uh, up through verse 19 here of the string of pearls, these verses that show us our depravity, radical depravity, total depravity, darn depraved, whatever you want to call it. Sinners who need a savior. And that's the black backdrop in our jewelry store of the gospel. And just as we close, why don't you flip in your Bible down to the bottom of the chapter. Romans chapter 3. And I just want to give you a little sampler of the diamond. Verse 28. We conclude... That a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then look at verse 30. There is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so just beginning to hand out this diamond out of the jewelry cabinet... If we've got nothing, if we are corrupt, if we have no righteousness and no inherent seeking after God, 
there's nothing good in me, then I am condemned. But he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, and he's going to go through the rest of the book. It's just a beautiful diamond. He says, no, you can be declared good and right and innocent. That's what that word justified is. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are saying, I've got nothing. You've got everything. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. My friend Ian, uh, sometimes you meet him. He owns a home in Primeville, but he lives up in Sandy. And he uh, has this hilarious thing. I've known him since we were 20 years old. And he does this hilarious dance where he pulls his pockets out. And he, he does this little dance. We, we always do it in the kitchen when we're making dinner, hanging out with our families. I'm like, Ian, do that thing. Do that little thing. He pulls out his pocket. He's like, it's dumb. I know, but now, you're going to do it tonight in your kitchen. I know you will. <laughs> but essentially, I just love it because this is us coming. You know, when we die and we stand before the throne of God and you've got your books of all the good stuff you've done and you've got your Boy Scout vest on, you know, and you're like, hey, Lord, check out these badges. Pretty awesome, huh? Huh? Can you let me in? We're going to see here coming up that your mouth is going to be shut and the books are going to be open that show all the sins that you've ever done. And you'll be condemned if you're resting on your merit badges to get you into heaven. And ultimately, this is how we should approach heaven before the Lord. Like, huh? <laughs> it's like, I am bankrupt. I am totally empty. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I wasn't born out of the womb seeking after you, Lord. I'm a sinner. I've lusted, coveted, stole. I've been greedy. I've been selfish. I've, I, even the way I've pursued you so often, it's for selfish purposes. And I don't have a red cent to my name as to why you should allow me into heaven. Except for this, that Jesus Christ, the righteous, died in my place and I completely cling to what Jesus has done and Jesus will stand in your defense and so as we close down today I want to give you the opportunity to lay down all the merits that you think you've owned the think you've got listed up for that day you're going to show God how awesome you are and right now in this Crooked River Park Amphitheater on this beautiful September day, you can lay aside your self-righteousness and you can receive righteousness through Jesus Christ that comes by believing in Him. So will you set your things aside? Will you just pray with me right now? And the Bible tells us that when we do that, and we receive Jesus' righteousness, an incredible moment happens. It's a moment that the Bible calls being born again, or it calls it being regenerated. The Bible says it's being given a new heart, or we studied it earlier today about having our hearts circumcised. 
And right now where you're at, man, I know it takes one to know one. And I know that if you're here and you're a, you're a red-blooded American, hard-working Crook County, man, I can make it on my own. I don't take nothing from nobody. Well, I got news for you today. You're going to need to humble yourself before God and say to him right now in prayer with me, you could just say, Lord, I will not make it on my own. And I hear that I need to realize my sinfulness today and you've shown it to me. I am not the bee's knees. I am not righteous apart from you. I have not spent a life just seeking after you in purity of heart. And I know that I, if I were to die today, I would be condemned to hell. And so just Rory's dumb, silly analogy, Lord, I just show you my empty pockets. And I just say, Jesus Christ, will you save my soul? Will you wash away my sins? Will you give me your goodness and your righteousness? Will you forgive me? Will you give me a new heart? Will you put the Holy Spirit inside of me? So I can know you and want you and live for you. Change my heart, Lord. Change my mind. Give me a new nature. Lord, today, by faith, I want to be a Christian. A follower of you, Lord. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Help me to live for you from this day forward. And Lord, for those of us that today we are Christians, we came to this park and we're children of God. We've been born again as we came to church today. Lord, every day, preach this to us, Lord. We would daily be reminded that it's not about our performance. It's about your grace. And that's just a word for you today, Christian. Just, it's not about your performance. How well you did this week or how well you didn't do. It's about him. Rejoice in his performance today. Rest in his performance. Give God glory today for the good things that were done, knowing that it was him in you that performed those things. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I really believe there's no better time than the present to say, okay, wow, first step of someone who's believed in Jesus, baptism. Here is water. What hinders you from being baptized? During this next song, I just would invite you, if you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, even if today was the day you became a Christian, I invite you to the water trough over there during this last song. Probably it'll be one of our final baptisms this year until the weather gets nice again. Uh, so yeah, today is really the day.
I just encourage you to be brave and to go to those waters. And man, the second you feel the Lord just nudging you, uh, don't shut him down. Step out in obedience and, and come to the waters. You can meet me over there. Uh, what we typically do, if you're new here, we kind of all pivot right now. And we just spend some time waiting at the water. Uh, for any one of our friends or family here that would be baptized.